0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. Pastor Andy, thanks for preaching last week, covering Romans five, six through eight. Uh, what a blessing to be able to watch live. Uh, our tech team downstairs, whether you're down there now or you're, you're in here because you were down there last week. Congratulations, or, or, or well, well done is what I mean to say. Thank you so much. For what you 're doing, you are blessing us. Uh, it was a wonderful thing to be able to watch live uh, well, listen, I mostly listen as I was driving home from Missouri uh, last week and to to hear from the uh, mission team that went to Haiti uh, that that is really going to prepare us for the the three mission trips we have this summer and then the, the mission trip to Africa in November. I was blessed, uh, Pastor Andy, by your sermon, blessed by the testimony. Uh, Taylor, really blessed that you're going to come on as the uh, uh, communications director for our missions team. I think you're going to do a wonderful job with that. Uh, wasn't it an amazing thing to hear how the Lord is at work through our church? Uh, to hear of Jordani, the witch doctor who Gave his life to Christ and the first act of obedience was he burned down his voodoo shack, his, his sole source of income. You talk about, you know, giving, saying yes to Jesus and going all in. That was an amazing thing. It was a blessing to hear about that. It's a blessing to hear that 60 of our people have said we're going to go on short-term mission trips this year. In those five different mission trips, it's a blessing to be part of a church that looks out at the lost world with love and compassion and says, we're going to risk much to take the gospel to them. It's a blessing to be part of a church that has a vision of raising up every member as a missionary, taking the gospel across the street and around the world and Lord willing, 25 years from now, supporting a missionary in every country on the planet and seeing 50 missionaries come up out of our congregation that go to the nations. That's an audacious vision, and I believe the Lord is in it. I believe the Lord has that for us, and I believe that uh, the Lord is going to help us to do it. It's so one of those visions that if the Lord doesn't move, then we're going to look silly. If the Lord does not move, we're going to look back on this time, and we're going to say, "You know what, that was impossible. Why do we even try?" But we try because we believe that that's what the Lord wants us to do. And so that's all we can do is we can do what the Lord wants us. We can, we can head that direction, and we can hope, and we can pray that by his will, it will be done. But Pastor Randy called me on Monday, and he goes, Pastor Brown, I'm not sure that I fully covered everything in Romans 5, 6 through 8. You know, he recognized that this passage is dense, and if we squeeze it again, that we would get more goodness out of it. And, and he was basically telling me, Pastor Brown, if you want to go back and do 6 through 11, because it's really one passage, it's not going to hurt his feelings, and so, Pastor Randy, I thank you for that humility, uh, and recognizing that, and I, I would like to do that, so I want to, to cover this whole passage, Romans 5, 6-11. through 11. I should have asked you to turn there before, but just so you know, it is written in the bulletin. Just for future reference, as is next week's passage. Just so you know, if you want to be reading ahead. I do think that the people that get the most out of these sermons are those that are studying it during the week. Hint, hint, that's what my army instructors would do. They would do like this right here. If they're telling us something's on the test, but they didn't want to say it's on the test, they would just say, you might want to study that, you know. But uh, those that get the most out of it are those that, that open their Bibles during the week and read through it and begin to pray over it and ask the Lord to speak to them. So here's Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, you are doing incredible things at this church, you are changing people's lives in this community and around the world. And you've given us an audacious vision. But Lord, something that that we would never be able to achieve on our own. We come to you, Lord. We ask that you would bless the efforts. Lord, we pray that you would work in a way that only you can work. I thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to understand it, help us to apply it, help us to obey, help us to submit, help us to hope, help us to trust, help us to know that you love us and you proved it through the death of your son. We pray these things in his name, amen. Paul says, while we were still weak, while we were still broken, while we were still far from God, while we were still at enmity with God, while we were still hopelessly wicked and lost and dead. That's what Paul means when he says weak. You know, weak for us means, well, maybe I'll get over it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll rest and I'll get strong again. No, weak means Dead. That's what Paul means. He's already made that very clear that Christ died for the ungodly while we were weak, while we were dead, while we were in our sin. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who says it was the right time? God does. God is sovereign. When was the right time for Christ to die? The hour that he died. That's the big theme for John. If you read through John, you start to notice that over and over and over again, the Pharisees tried to kill Jesus for claiming to be God. People say Jesus never claimed to be God. He makes seven claims called "ego I may" claims. They're "I am" claims, and the the Pharisees every most of the times that he tried to, that he made those statements, they wanted to kill him because they knew that he was claiming to be God. But over and over again, he slips through their hands. And John says, because his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 13, I believe the end of chapter 12, early 13, now his hour is at hand. So at the right time, God is the one who ordained it. God is sovereign. The right time is the time that God had already planned before. Time began for Jesus to die. At the right time, Christ died. For who? Who did Christ die for? The ungodly. The ungodly are those who live without reference to God. I I need you to cue into that statement. The ungodly are those who live without reference to God. So in my Connect group, we're studying a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. And the first acceptable sin or respectable sin that Jerry Bridges covers is the sin of ungodliness, We don't speak much about ungodliness, and yet we ought to, because ungodliness is the essence of what it means to be a sinner. People imagine that pride is the root of all sin. I mean, after all, Satan was proud and fell and tempted Adam and Eve with, or through pride. He appealed to their pride. You get to be the one that decides right from wrong. However, pride is the byproduct of ungodliness. So Bridges says that pride is the tree trunk from which all the branches of sin branch out. But ungodliness is the root system that feeds it. The ungodly are those who pay no mind to things of God. Their hearts are not pricked by the Holy Spirit's conviction. Their minds are not attuned to hear the voice of the Lord through His word. They're not praying. They're not seeking. They're not submitting. They don't care what God thinks about their attitudes or their words or their actions. And what is nefarious is that it is not only pagans who live ungodly lives. But from the beginning of time, religious people have lived ungodly. Jesus had something to say about the ungodly Jew. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So you can be a religious person and still be ungodly. You can be religiously devoted. You can even have the Bible and read the Bible and know the Bible and memorize the Bible and quote the Bible and still live ungodly because you live without reference to God. You live your life as if you, the creature, are sovereign and God is somehow just existing to bless you that God ought to live in reference to you. In vain do these people worship me. They honor me with their lips. They, they say all the right things. But their heart is far from me. They don't love me. They don't desire a personal relationship with me. They, they do not concern themselves with my will for their life for their lives it is for the ungodly that christ what died died ungodliness cost jesus his life and yet we treat it as a respectable sin let me give you an example men if I were to walk up to you and say, brother, how are you doing in the area of pornography? I think you would probably be stunned, probably would be a little bit awkward, but I think you would acknowledge that's a fair question. Like that area of my life, it's fair game. I may not want to answer it. I may not want to be truthful and honest, but it's fair game. That, that area of my life ought to be submitted to God and I ought to be held accountable by other people. So pastor, yeah, that's okay for you to ask me that question. By the way, men, how are you doing with porn? Is August 18th on your calendar? The men's rally, you are not alone. Is that on your calendar yet? I told you about it six months ago. Maybe you're new. I want you to put it on your calendar. Men, I'm asking all of you, every one of you, I'm asking you to be here August 18th, 6 p.m. You are not alone. The reality is that I no longer imagine, or I no longer ask whether a man is struggling with pornography, but to what degree? To what degree are they resisting it? But for the most part, I think that, men, you would, you, would, you would say yes, yes. Pastor Brian, that's a fair game question. That area of my life Jesus has the right to to speak into that. That needs to be submitted. That's a fair question. But if I ask you, how are you stewarding your money? How are you doing faithfully stewarding your money? I think some of you would say, Pastor Brown, that's none of your business. That, th- that area of my life is not to be talked about. That, that's off the table. How I spend my money is no one's business. You can talk to me about pornography all you want to, but don't talk to me about how I spend my money. I'm going to live that part of my life without reference to God. That part of my life does not deserve God's input. So don't talk to me about that. Christ died for you. You belong to him. The Bible says that God, that that Christ ransomed you by his blood. So 100% of your life belongs to Jesus. 100% of your decisions and 100% of your desires belong to Jesus. There's no area of your life that you can say, "Well, I don't need to submit that to Christ." Christ died for the ungodly. My question for you is how much of your life are you living ungodly knowing that Christ died for you? How much of your life is is lived without reference to God? My social life, what I watch on TV, what I watch on Instagram, Facebook, Reels, TikTok, YouTube. That area of my life is without reference to God. God doesn't get to speak into that. My marriage, God doesn't get to speak into that. My sex life doesn't get to speak into that. My work doesn't get to speak into that. My money doesn't get to speak into that. Christ died for the ungodly. To what degree do you live ungodly without reference to God? How much of your life is off the table? Speaking of Christ's death, verse seven says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So Paul is highlighting the unlikelihood that anyone would ever lay down their life for you or that you would ever lay your life down for someone else. It's the most heroic thing that a person can do to lay down their life. You know, we, we see this. Paul recognizes that even though it's unlikely, it's scarce. I'm sure Paul has heard stories. You and I have heard stories. We hear about the firefighter that runs into the burning building retrieves the, the, the uh, unconscious resident, comes outside and he himself collapses, saving the victim. Or the police officer that runs toward the shooting. Or the soldier that jumps on the grenade. Right? We, we hear these stories and they're heroic. They're noble. But to Paul's point, these heroes are not dying for the bad guy. Right? Right? The police officer is not running to the the shots in order to, to give his life for the guy shooting. He's giving his life for the victims. The soldier is not jumping on the grenade to save the enemy that threw it. He's jumping on the grenade to save his buddies. And yet, here's Paul's point. Jesus did it for his enemy. So it's on a whole different level. It's on a whole different level. Jesus' death is even more admirable than anyone else's because it was for the lowlife and the thug and the hoodlum and the adulterer and the pornographer and the murderer and the self-righteous. It was for the ungodly that Christ died and gave his life as a ransom for many. It's a whole different class than any other sacrifice. And watch, it proves on a whole different level God's love for us. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us do you need anything else to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us? No, we don't. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is all the proof we ever need. Everything that you and I needed to be made right with God took place while we were covered in filth of our sin everything when we were still utterly depraved while we were in our sin Christ died for us there was never anything this is this is important because I still think that there's this subtle lie that Satan wants you to believe that you're the exception that this is generally true of the world You, because you were raised in the church and you weren't really all that bad, you're the exception. That's a lie from the devil. You were completely and hopelessly wicked. The Bible says that you were dead in your sin. Paul says, like the rest of mankind. In fact, he says, for us, Christ died for us. Not for them, not for you, but for us. And if you know anything about Paul, you know that he was the best of the best. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was raised up as a righteous Jew, as a zealous Jew. He was trained by the smartest and the best. He was zealous for good works. No one was better at being good than Paul. And Paul says that Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's no one in the room that can say, well, we may all have been dead in sin, but I was less dead in sin than you were. To think that, listen, to think that means that you may still be dead in sin. The proof of God's love for us is that even when we were hopelessly lost, Christ died for us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, there is no greater display of how a person feels for another person than that they would lay down their life It's the ultimate display of love. You can't top it. Making ourselves better while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If we're in Christ... If we are in Christ, not in church, but if we are in Christ, then what we know is that God's disposition towards us is love. That's more than a platitude. This is an essential truth. In Christ, God's disposition toward you is that of love. When you think about God, what what kind of face do you think God is making as he thinks about you? Christian, what do you think God is, do you think he's scowling at you? Do you think he's looking upon you with disappointment? Amen. Say it again. Amen. Thank you, brother. He loves you. And he proved it by sending his son to die for you. Now watch this. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been justified. Justified is being made right with God. We've been, we've been dealing with this since Romans 3 verse 21. Now, watch this. Listen, you you need to get this because we're coming out of this justification section. And pretty soon we're moving on to sanctification. And sanctification is what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. And this is where we get called to obedience and to live godly lives. But it's built on the foundation of justification. So we're justified, we're made right by God by faith alone. To be justified is, is to have a legal declaration that a guilty person is not guilty. Why? Because someone else paid your dues. Someone else paid your dues. Pastor Andy, did you refer last week to you owe someone $5 million? Not What'd I say? $1,000? 1000 <laughs> I may have gotten this from someone else then. You know, imagine that, uh, I'm not saying you owed five, five million. No, okay, so I must have gotten this from, from another. I must have been listening to someone else, but you know, imagine that, that you owe someone $5 million, okay? And, and you're not wealthy. There's no means for you to, to get that money. And you're brought before uh, the court. And, and they say, yep, you owe that $5 million. And this is back in Jesus' day when you would go to prison until you could pay it off. And they handcuff you and they, they, they begin to take you away. And someone comes in and says, I'll pay that. And in a moment, you are released and free and clear. This is what Jesus did for you. Now, maybe for us, a million (laughs) dollars seems not not that big of a deal. One million (laughs) dollars. You know, let's just just call it 31 trillion like our national debt. Oh. You owe 31 trillion like the United States of America. And someone comes in and says, I'll pay that. I'll pay that. That's what Jesus did. That is justification, you are guilty. And Jesus says, you are not guilty because I paid for your sin. And you are free and clear. That's an important doctrinal term. You need to know that term justification. You need to know what it means. You are declared not guilty because someone else paid your penalty. Now, Pastor Andy did ask last week, upon what basis are we justified? And the basis upon which we are justified is not sentiment or, 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 or uh, um, niceties, but rather the basis of our justification is the blood of Jesus. Right? Jesus paid our dues. God didn't just simply turn a blind eye and sweep our sin under the rug. No, Jesus died. And paid our dues. Paul's word says, "By His blood, we are justified." By His blood, it was the shed blood of Christ. Without the shed blood, there is no atoning for sin, says Hebrews nine twenty-two. And Paul is making an argument here. He says, "Since, or because, we have now been justified." In other words, that's past tense. There's certainty, we have been justified. If you're in Christ, you have been justified. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we can have certainty, because we know we have been made right with God, we also have certainty that we're going to be spared from the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood to take the wrath of God away from us. There's a very real judgment awaiting all of humanity. And those that are in Christ have certainty. Certainty that we will be spared from that wrath. We will be saved by him. By who? By Jesus. We will be saved by him. This ought to cause us to exhale deeply. To, re- to release. If you really understand what is awaiting in the judgment, and you know that you have been made right with God by the shed blood of Christ, <sighs> right? Because you will be saved by Him. You will be spared from the wrath of God by him because Jesus died in your place. This should set you free from all fear because perfect love casts out fear. And God's love is poured into our hearts and it's proven by the death of Jesus. Look at Romans 5, 5. This is why we have hope that does not put us to shame. Remember, we covered this a couple of weeks ago before Easter. We covered this passage that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Why can we know that when we die, we will stand before God and we will not be put to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what is the proof that God loves us? The death of his son Jesus Christ. Now look, if we are afraid of God, there is a biblical reverence that we call fear. And we are to fear God, but we're not to be afraid of God. We don't have to wonder what is God's disposition towards us. We don't have to wonder, is God for us or against us? In Christ, we know God is for us. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the love of God has been poured into our hearts through his spirit that he has given to us. The love of God is the assurance that we will never experience His wrath. Do you know that? I don't mean intellectually. I mean, do you know that God is for you? Not every one of you does. Some of you don't know. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus today. Verse 10 continues, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the argument goes like this, if you and I were made right with God or reconciled to God while we were depraved and wicked, if that's what the death of his Son earned for us, something that we can never achieve ourselves, how much more will his life save us from God's wrath? Pastor Andy, you, you referenced John 14, 6. Well, guess what? So did I. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I came to give you life and life abundant. Life What did we celebrate two weeks ago? Jesus' resurrection, death defeated, life has won. If his death reconciled us to God, how much more will his life save us? If he just stayed dead, what would that do for us? Nothing. But the affirmation that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus came to give life and life abundant is that Jesus is alive today. Amen? He is risen. He is risen. That works every Sunday. Really, it works every day. It's not just an Easter thing or a resurrection Sunday thing. But look, Jesus came to give life and life abundant, whereas the devil, Jesus said in, in that same verse, the devil came to only to steal, kill, and destroy which was our lot in life. That was who we were. That's what we had. Whatever we had outside of Christ, whatever we have today, if you're not in Christ, whatever you have, you don't have life. Whatever it is you have, it's not life. But in Christ, life and life abundant. And we don't have to wait until the life to come to experience this life. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Now, that's present tense. You don't have to wait until you die and go to heaven to have life. No, Jesus gives life to us now. We have the spiritual blessings of God now. We have peace with God now. We can go into his throne room now and find mercy in our time of need now. Praise the Lord. Glory to his name. Folks, as we look around, it is hard not to imagine that we are living in the end times. Am I right? Digital currency, artificial intelligence, China, Russia, things going on in Israel, tyranny, look at what's happening all over the world. It's hard for me not to imagine that we are living in the end times. When I said... At the beginning, when I offer that pre sermon invitation that Jesus may come back while I'm preaching, I mean that that's a possibility. But our call is not to be afraid. Christian, do not fear. Your preparation. If we are living in the end times and, and the, the people that, that read the Bible, the people that wrote the Bible believed that it was imminent, then it our responsibility as we prepare for the end times is not to hoard, to build a bunker, to save up years worth of food. You're not going to outlive the tribulation. You're you're not going to outprepare the tribulation. But what does what does the whole New Testament tell us to do? What's the tenor of the whole New Testament? Be ready. Spiritually ready. Know that you know that you know Jesus and that Jesus knows you. That's your preparation. Don't be afraid. You will be saved by his life even if you're killed even if you're killed. I get so weary when people say, thank you, Lord, for blessing me with another day. The only blessing of me living another day is that I get to lead and shepherd my family and my flock. If I wake up in heaven today, that's the blessing, right? But I think it betrays a subtle subtle disbelief about what happens next if you really believe that the, that the next moment when you breathe your last breath is that you wake up in glory, then you will say instead, Lord, you have given me another day to be faithful, to serve you as I long to be with you. Am I right? So we don't, we don't have to fear, we don't have to be afraid of what, what's gonna happen, what's gonna come. We will be saved by his life. We know that the resurrection is God's stamp of approval. This really is the way. This is my plan of salvation. You you trust in Jesus, you are saved. You will be saved from my wrath. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. More than that, Paul says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, there is no excuse to linger long in despair. There is no excuse to mope and throw a pity party. There's no reason for you to be cast down. Now, don't get me wrong, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of reasons to feel grief, to feel anxiety, to feel fear. Grief is real. Pressure is real. Suffering is real. Despair is real. Even for believers, it's real. But we don't have to let it control us. Why? Because there is something that is more real than despair. And what is that? That through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have received reconciliation to God. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's a platitude, that's a cliche, listen to what you just said. And I'm, imp- I'm imputing that a little bit. Maybe no one's thinking that. But if you're thinking, well, Pastor Brian, you're just saying, well, just be happy because I've been reconciled to God. Yeah! <laughs> Rejoice! That once this light momentary affliction is over, you're going to spend eternity with God. I think that as Paul reflected on the reality of this salvation, that we have been given by grace through faith alone. We've not had to earn this or work for this, but it's been given to us as a gift, that this is, a, this is, is, is his benediction, it's his exaltation. He bursts out with praise. I'm going to rejoice in my salvation. Doesn't mean that we have to deny suffering or hardship or pain. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul doesn't say you don't suffer. He says, look, suffering produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Why? Because we've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of those things that you have to drive home. So many Christians, I think, spend so much of their time wallowing in anxiety and despair. And they get so good rehearsing all their woes. When what the Bible tells us to do is rehearse the things that are true and right and good and noble and praiseworthy and beautiful. Philippians 4, 6 through 9. To dwell upon these things. To dwell upon the gospel. The next time that you start feeling sorry for yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. That you are a sinner saved by grace, reconciled to a holy God and given life in him. And this is temporal. Temporal. And most of what we're anxious about never comes to fruition anyway. Look, get the help you need. I'm not denying that you need help. I'm not denying that you need someone to walk with you through this. That's why we have a body. That's why why we gather. That's why we love each other. Share one another's burdens. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Anxiety, grief, suffering. It's all real. But there's a greater reality There's a key that unlocks the door of despair. I'm reading my, with my kids a book called Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's a kid's rendition of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And we have it in our resource center. You can pick it up. But I'm reading this to my kids during family worship for a season And this past Monday, we read the story of the giant of despair. And these pilgrims, who are characterized as small, fragile animals, find themselves in the grasp of the giant of despair. And the giant takes them to his castle and he locks them in a dark dungeon. And they can't see each other. It's completely dark. And he beats them and he withholds food from them. And he taunts them and torments them day and night. And they are locked in the dungeon of despair. And he gives them poison to drink and says, this is your only way of escape. The only way you're getting out of here is if you drink this poison and die. And after some time of of being in despair, Christian, the main pilgrim, comes to his senses and he prays. He remembers who he is. He's a child of the king. And so he prays to the king. And the king sends an angel in the form of a thought, of a reminder Perhaps bringing back in our lives and in reality a reminder of scripture, of the gospel. And the mental thought is you were given a key along the way. Perhaps that key would open the door and allow you to escape. So sure enough, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out the key of promise. The key of promise opens the dungeon door and he and his friend escape from despair. Now there is a key that unlocks these prison doors of despair, of anxiety, of fear, of trouble, of suffering. The key of promise that you belong to God and not to yourself, and certainly not to your enemy. The promise that God loves you, and the proof of that love is the death of Jesus Christ. The promise that God is for you and not against you. The promise that though you were once dead, yet you now live. The promise that he is coming back, and he is going to be with us, and we are going to be with him in a place that he has spent 2,000 years now preparing for us. The promise that he sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us, who constantly pours out God's love for us into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5 who reminds us that we are children of God, Romans 8, and intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, Romans 8. So whatever you are facing right now, little pilgrim, whatever you're going through, whatever suffering, whatever anxiety, rejoice. Not that you are locked in the dungeon of despair but that you have been given the key of promise, the hope of your salvation, reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and life in him. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you be glorified as we respond now. Lord, that truth that we have been reconciled to you that's a truth that we need to drive deep. That's one of those things that we have to choose to believe and we, even when we don't feel it. Lord, help us to, help us to turn our eyes to heaven when we are walking through the storms on earth and remind ourselves that we belong to you that you love us and you demonstrated your love and that while we were self-sinners, Christ died for us. Open our eyes and open our hearts and help us, Lord, to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already follow us on instagram like us on facebook subscribe to us on youtube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it but you know we believe that as a follower of jesus christ that you need the body of christ you need the local church and so if you're in the quad cities let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on sundays at 9 a.m and 10 40. if you're not in the quad cities i want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.